welcome to the show. Paul George in studio with Deacon Adam Cong. It's definitely a Tuesday tune. Well, it, it, the weather makes me feel like this right now. <laughs> you know, last week we recorded on a Friday, and I think the music we were jamming out. And <laughs> this week is kind of a Tuesday. It's kind of like that, that sandwich day in the week where you're just like, is the week ever going to end? <laughs> you know? Uh, so we are here on Tuesday morning recording the show here on KLFT Radio. So thanks, everyone, for listening in uh, on the podcast or on the radio. Great to be with you this week. Again, we had a great show last week. If you want to listen to the show, you can go back and listen on a podcast on iTunes or Google Play. So, Adam, how's it going, man? It's going great. It is a beautiful time of year to be alive. A lot of great stuff happening in uh you know, the, the church parishes here, for example, we just had our family fun day at our parish. Nice. My kids rode a pony. Well, some really? of them did. Right. A couple were too big. Did you know there's a weight limit on a pony? No. That disappointed that me. That makes when I went, sense. Yeah. <laughs> did you try to get on the pony? Well, they, they didn't let me. Did we talk a few weeks ago about riding a camel? That came yeah. up on the show. Yeah. Did they have a camel? Ridden a camel. Did, they, did they have one? No, they didn't. So it was like a little petting zoo, mm-hmm. and then you could ride a pony. I'm sure you're. Little kids were just ecstatic. Oh yeah, and one of the ponies had a unicorn, like kind of Velcro to helmet, its head. <laughs> a little unicorn I don't helmet. Know how they had it on there? I was like, did they drill that thing? Poor. Pony. You know what's that's going to confuse kids because they're going to go to school and be like, I I saw a unicorn. And the teacher is going to be like, No, you didn't. Those don't exist. And the kids going to be really confused. No, it's true. This was like this. There's a place locally that has um, dinosaur robots that mm-hmm. you can visit, and it's like a the idea is it's a uh, like a dinosaur zoo, right? But because of that, because we went there, my four-year-old still doesn't quite get that dinosaurs are not alive. He's like, well, we saw them. I get that. We saw that. But they're robots. They're not real animals. But he's still, between that and Jurassic Park, I mean, he really thinks, you know, dinosaurs are alive. It's so interesting you say that because last week we were talking about this men's retreat I did out in Texas at this ranch. And they have these Jeeps that you ride around in on, on the property and stuff because, you know, it's... It's a ranch and, and, you know, the terrain and whatnot. So, you know, your car is not a good a good deal to, to go around, but they mm-hmm. have these Jeeps. And it feels like when you're riding around in these Jeeps, it feels like Jurassic Park. Like nice. it feels like. That's a good feeling, right? Like in any moment, like a pterodactyl is <laughs> just going to come and like attack the Jeep. Now, you are know? you like and, me where you think of the scenarios about if that happens, this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, just it, we were all laughing about it in the Jeep, just adult <laughs> men. we like, it feels like Jurassic Park. <laughs> Or being a Navy SEAL, or both—I don't know. It was just kind of like, <laughs> kind of there. But it would be, it would be kind of cool if like we had like those prehistoric animals around. You know, I mean, we kind of yeah. do with alligators here. You know, like you it's think true. about it, like those things. You know, why have they survived and others haven't? But you know, it's true. And I mean, there's things like bobcats and mountain lions that are around. You know, they go into neighborhoods, wreak havoc. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And, they exist. Yeah. No, that's true. But I think I would over uh, achieve the weight limit on a pony, probably. I think I got you beat on weight. You definitely have me on height, but I think I have you beat on weight. But both of us are above <laughs> 50 pounds, which was little, uh, I think her name was Lucy, little yeah, Lucy's I limit. probably exceeded that weight in like first grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, uh, anyway. Um, thanks for listening to the show. So, do you have a have you seen? What did you say? That is so interesting. Oh, for real though? This is pretty neat. Okay. So, you've heard of a place called Jerusalem, right? 
I have. Yeah, that's come across before. Yeah, a few times. A lot of important things have happened there. That yeah, yeah. In fact, the most important thing ever, or things ever, has happened there. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, it's been a a place of a lot of activity, you could say. Well, that includes the Crusades, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. just a little history recap: the um, Crusades were a history of conflicts between Christians and Muslims to take back the Holy Land that had been taken over by the Muslims, right? So, anyway, well, very recently in Jerusalem, an Israeli scuba diver found an ancient sword off the country's Mediterranean coast that experts say does date back to the First Crusades. Which is what years? Oh, this was... Uh, That's crazy. Thousand-ish. Wow. Earlier, maybe, 900s. No, it was like 1200s. Oh, shoot. I don't know. My, my church history ago. teacher is very mad at me right now. It doesn't matter. I taught you this. But uh, if you look at a picture, it's it's a sword that's been surrounded by, like, coral and shells. Hmm. So it could be the most epic sword in the world at this point. Um, the dive was about 150 meters, which I think for us means, like, 170 yards, off the coast, and was only, like... Um, six yards deep and then found this sword and it just it just looks like a piece of coral but in a, a sword shape but uh anyway it's pretty neat and when you look at it they took pictures of where they found it it's it's standing up like a cross in the ocean wow with like shells on it and uh it's legit man that's pretty cool um it's like 500 feet down that's that's pretty deep i mean i mean it, there's deeper places in the ocean but yeah um well, there's a picture of the guy who found it, and he's um, that is that is kind of cool. He's holding it like you hold like a fish, I guess. When right. you take, I've never taken a picture with a big fish because I've only caught little ones. It kind of looks like Pirates of the Caribbean when exactly. you know some of those characters have like the shells, mm-hmm. you know, growing on them. You know, it, it looks like that. But would be an artifact that you would love to find from like the early centuries. That would be like, I mean. You know, well, I would, I'll give you two answers, and here's why. Okay, I do love important things. So, like for example, if I obviously found like the Holy Grail or something like that, like the chalice Jesus used at the Last Supper, or um, the uh, maybe like clothes from the apostles that they actually wore or right. something like that. I love important things, but also love completely unimportant things that were around important people. So, like if I had like, for example, the clock of Napoleon in my house or just, you know, that has nothing to do with anything other than it belonged to somebody important. Right. I would want something like that. Yeah. And I I can think of so many just little items like, like the bowl that Pilate washed his hands in, Mm -hmm. like in front of Christ, you know, like just like, where is that? You know, like it's buried somewhere, you know, I mean, unless it was clay, you know, it got shattered in pieces, but if it was made of metal or whatever, it could, it could still be in the ground somewhere. That's right. See, I'd take that as an important thing. I'd also take Pilate's, like, bath towel or mm-hmm. pin. Hmm. That has no, no importance, but it belonged to Pilate. It, it, it did. Yeah. I would I, love I that don't think Jesus had anything valuable that he carried around. Like, you know, <clears throat> probably not. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, what what did he use at the Last Supper? You know, what you know what was the chalice and the, you know, what was going on there? That would be cool. But be cool, you know, like an like a gladiator helmet from like the early centuries or something like that. That like those types of relics and things would be pretty amazing. Yeah, and I, I think it's important for 
it's very human to be in touch with history, you know, and to actually have a visceral experience of it. Right. I'm always reminded, like today, we we celebrate uh, the memorial of Saint Isaac Jogue and John de Brebeuf and companions that were martyred here in our in our continent, and there there are martyrs, right? Like they're they're the martyrs who die for the faith in our land. And to me, this just is so meaningful because it's very close, it's very visceral, and it's not like some faraway place. It's you know, like Isaac Jogue died in New York. He was martyred there, and I've been to New York, so it, it just makes it um, much more real. And so I like artifacts for that reason. That's why I can't wait to go to the Holy Land. Have you been to the Holy Land? I have not. It's one of my biggest regrets. We got invited to a trip on the Holy Land, paid for, mm. and we couldn't go. Oh. Gretchen, we had, we had uh, yeah, just with family, kids, yeah. you know, it was like a two-week jaunt. It's a big thing. And we look back and be like, oh, man, we missed out. But anyway, you know, we don't think much about archaeologists and the work they do. we like, oh, they dig, whatever. You know, like, who wouldn't want to do that, you know? I can dig it. And uh, there he is. <laughs> and But the reality is when you find things like this, artifacts, things of history, it reminds us that the things that have happened in history and in the past are real, right? It kind mm-hmm. of brings to light, like... These aren't just stories. Like, they're not made up, you know, myths. I mean, although there's some, obviously, myths and tales out there. But all the things of our faith and of Christ, not only point back to history, but there's there's evidence of that history to back up that history, right? Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Like, you trace it back 2,000 years. But even our faith before Christ, our, our you know, our our heritage throughout the Old Testament. I mean, there's there's artifacts, there's pieces, there's all these things that have been discovered, you know, rediscovered and, and pieced together to give us a glimpse of what really happened. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, when you think about it, you know? Yeah, and it makes it not a myth, right? It's not just a myth that there aren't, because art, myths don't have artifacts. Right. And I think that, you know, you bring up an important point you know, when we talk about our faith and we talk about theology, this isn't this isn't a just a philosophy that's talked about in a silo or an echo chamber. It's it's not just, you know, let's sit around, smoke pipes and just talk about, you know, you know, stuff, right? Mm. Our theology is is based in history at the same time. You know, so like when we say that we're Christian, we say that we're Catholic it's not just based on today. It's based on thousands of years of history that we go back to that back up what we believe. So why do we take history in school? I mean, why do we take history in our theology classes, you know, for our master's degrees is because history is part of our theology, right? It backs up what we believe uh, physically, uh, all those things. And, And so you, you base church teaching on also on history, you know, mm-hmm. the truth of history, not like the made up history. Like we think this happened, you know, like, so the importance of like, when we talk about our faith with, you know, uh, reason and science coming together, you know, and how science backs up our theology. So does history. All of it comes together to back it up. We don't deny history so that we can make our theology better. The two, uh, you know, are in sync together. Yeah, and, and you know our personal faith is bound up in history, and unfortunately today a lot of people just don't care about history. 
They just don't care. I guess we look at it as a subject in school and not part of our human experience. And that's not everybody. There are a lot of people who are really interested in history. Like, for example, the um, DNA test where you can find out where your family's from. Mm -hmm. That's very popular. But I guess because we treat it as just kind of a subject or a discipline and not something that's, like, essentially human, this makes it harder to hand on the faith to people, I think, because my relationship with Jesus is not just my relationship with Jesus, but this is a Jesus who's been working in the lives of people for 2,000 years, right, who lived a life on earth, who died, who rose again, and has been very active in the world for 2,000 years. And all of that is bound up into my relationship with him. And if I'm going to really know him, it's kind of like if you didn't know a part of your wife's life story. Right. Like if there were five, ten years of your wife's life that you didn't know, well, you need to fix that, right? Like part of intimacy is that I know the person that I'm intimate with. Jesus has been alive for a long time, and so there's a lot to knowing Jesus wrapped up in knowing the history of the church, knowing what he's done in the lives of St. Isaac Jogue and Maria Goretti and people. You know, this is my same Jesus. It's not right. like I get my little Jesus that my history is only the history that's important to him. No, his history needs to be important to me. Yeah, to be Christian is to embrace history, not to deny it. And I think there are sects of Christians who don't look back at all of history. Mm. They start history where they want to start history. They forget history where they want to forget history. They add history where they want to add history, and that's not truth, right? Mm -hmm. it, the same can go with, with science. Oh, we're going to deny some science. You know, we're going to say that science is against Christianity. No, like faith and science and reason help us to have a better understanding of our faith. Like, like to deny that is to deny the you know parts of God and and how big and huge God is in in, in the realm of science and in reason. With history is oh, if we, let's just start our our Christian history five hundred years ago. No, it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Let's just start our our you know, Christian history 2,000 years ago. Actually, no, it doesn't work that way. Our history goes back to all of time, as far back as we can go, and uncovering that history, even if you go back to, you know, creation, and you begin to argue evolution or the Big Bang or how did it start or whatever, all that, all that helps us to just unpack and discover more and more of God. And so for us as Christians, we don't deny history as Catholics is we go all the way back because it helps us to learn even more. You know, we're not afraid to dig up something and think, oh, this could this could like deny our faith or make our faith weaker. So let's not do that. Let's not go that far back. No. Right. Like there's excitement because everything that we discover only affirms what we already know and even better helps us learn more. And I think that's why so many converts to the faith will tell you it began with a, a dive into history, mm, exactly. a dive into how things actually happened, how the church really was, how it was Catholic bishops who wrote the New Testament, how it was the Catholic Church who gave us the Bible, how it was the Catholic—you know what I mean? The conversion to the faith is often a journey of history, and that's one of the reasons you know the enemy doesn't want us— talking about these things, right? Or wants to oversimplify things. Even even Catholics that are into their faith, you know, I, I think that the enemy wins a little when we oversimplify history and say, oh, 
everything before 1964 was rigid and awful or everything after 1964 is just modern and, and useless, right? Like those oversimplifications of history deny what God has done in those time periods and what we really need to know. And the devil wins when we just paint a broad stroke, you know? <laughs> I was uh, thinking of a story years ago, uh, her friend and he, there was a translation of scripture that was for like inner city, you know, so it was a New Testament version with, with inner city dialogue or whatever that meant. Right? Nice. And it was like, and Jesus said, hey, bro, what's up? You know, <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, nothing, just hanging. Like, and it was <laughs> literally, and I was thinking, yeah, okay, like I get like what they were trying to do. But at the same time, I'm thinking at our history and I'm thinking 2,000 years ago or, you know, <clears throat> there there were little monks in cells translating by hand scripture, writing it down, right? And coming up with with what we would know as the Bible, the text, the sacred text, um, and thinking the, those, those guys are rolling around in their grave right now, <laughs> man, you know? So to preserve the history or think back on it is to think, man, like we have what we know today as sacred scripture because because it goes all the way back then, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's made it all this way. And there is a point that we do try to preserve the 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 sacredness of that. Like if you keep translating things down, you dilute the original meaning, you know, which which is why like in even in recent history within the liturgy, the mass, the church is kind of saying, "Okay, let's go back to some original text and make sure our translations are are right on, right? Mm. They you know, like in the early 2000s they redid the general instruction to the Roman missile which we called the germ, you know, in, in in acronym. Catch the germ. Catch the germ. But there was, you know, people were all like, "Why are they changing?" It was like, "No, they actually weren't changing to dilute. They were actually going back to do a better translation in, in some of the wording and whatnot." And that's that's so beautiful, like to think that we have the ability to do that and have the history. It only helps us to deepen our faith and to grow in our faith even more, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, attending a talk by Scott Hahn once, but he talked about a major cultural crisis is a very small historical memory. And he was saying how this is part of our crisis is that most of us don't think past, you know, the past 10 years, 5, 10, 20 years, even even events in our country that happened less than 100 years ago that a lot of great lessons can be learned from. So, for example, you know, a lot of the racial tensions of today that are so visceral, you know, it was not that long ago in the 60s and 70s that we had all of these lessons learned back then. You know, we had all these tensions and we had the riots and we had the, and we have such a short historical memory that we're going to now be repeating all these things over and over and over because we just don't learn about these things and we don't take them seriously. Our our vision of history is very narrow. Hmm. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about one of the greatest saints that we all know. What? Yep. We'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the health care problem. Are you paying too much for your health care cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. 
Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Paul George, Deacon Adam Conk in studio. It's a beautiful day. I got my shell sword right here. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a Claymore sword. It's a 54-inch sword. Really? I have it in my office. It was a gift because I love the movie Braveheart, Mm -hmm. which if I found an actual artifact from that time, that would be cool. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the Claymore is was a you know, a type of sword that they use, 54 inches long, you know, and the replica, it's a sword that's a replica of one of the ones they used in the movie, Gladiator, I mean, uh, Braveheart. Really? Yeah. Oh, neat. Mm-hmm. So it's the real, it's a replica of the real deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's pretty intimidating. If you come to my office and it's <sighs> on the wall, you kind of, and you don't know, or you don't know me, or it's the first time meeting in the office, you're just like, hey, what's that all about? But it's a good get you fired up to get yeah, to work. Yeah, and it's got some spiritual meaning for me, like being a sword bearer, the sword being the word, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. Bible and the scripture, you know. So it's got some spiritual meaning, sword bearer meaning, you know, bearing, you know, you know, battle for God, yada yada. It's got a lot of meaning other than just, you know, brave heart. I think sometimes, not to get too off topic, but I think about what you're talking about, how like almost all the jobs in the world are getting reduced to sitting at a computer. Mm-hmm. And I think about this as like somebody who works for the church or has been for a while, like how much time I've logged sitting at a computer in this kind of work. But like soldiers, you know, that are supposed to be wielding that sword every day, you know, like how much, I don't know, I don't know how much time is spent in front of a computer. But I often think about that, like, is there another way to do this stuff? Because in the past, you know, going to history, of course, like if you were an evangelist or someone who devoted their life to spreading the gospel, you didn't sit behind a computer a lot, you know? Like, how do you pick up that sword every day and get to work? And, that, well, and we're going to talk about that because, you know, w- within work and within the, the church, like, we, we need certainly organization and administration, right? But I always said, like, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm at my desk, like, I'm not doing much good for the kingdom, right? Like, mm. I can organize and I can do, but, you know, with with you and I is more of like, you know, evangelists, like we got to be doing the work of God, you know, pick up the sword, which is, you know, modeled for us in one of the greatest saints that we've known right in our history and time, which this week we celebrate what feast of JP two. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. John Paul the Great, St. John Paul the Great, um, October 22nd, right? Am I yeah. wrong? Oh, no, you're right. Okay. 100% right. Yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. I So I grew up with him as as my pope, you know, and then as you an touched a, him. As an adult, you know, Pope Benedict. But, you know, he, he was the second pope. I was young when, you know, I think before him was John the 23rd yeah, Paul or 6th. Yeah, Paul the 6th died in 78, and then... Paul, John Paul the first was Pope for like a month. Yeah, and then John Paul the second. So I had three. Yeah, so I was, I was, you know, don't remember those guys, but however I was alive. But JP two I grew up with, and you know it was different back then because you didn't know, uh, there was no internet, social media, like so you would just maybe see the Pope on the news. But you know when he 
started doing World Youth Days, traveling around the world. I mean, he was the most traveled pope ever, you know? And, like, he was an evangelist. Like, he wasn't about popularity. Like, he wasn't traveling so he could his name could be known. Like, as the vicar of Christ, standing in, in the footsteps of Peter and Jesus, like, he believed that going out to the people would bring hope, you know? And one of his greatest books was a book on hope called, you know— um, and uh, I think it was Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Yeah. That one. I love that book because hope is like what we all want and desire. And when he would go into places and countries, that's what he brought was hope, the hope of Jesus, the hope of love, the hope of hope, you know? I mean, here was a man who stood the walls of communism and helped to bring that down. Like he was, he stood in the gap uh, mm-hmm. and wasn't afraid. Like he, he fought against so many things, and yet he was loving and gentle and peaceful, and he was smart. He was a philosopher and a historian. And for me, like, it was the first image that I had of, like, you know, of, man, like, there's something very attractive about him. So as a teenager, you know, you kind of think about it. And then I got invited to World Youth Day in Denver in 93, and I went, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't, I didn't, it was kind of vacillating in my faith as a teenager, right? And then going to, to a vigil mass with him, and then mass with all these people, and, and then, you know, seeing him drive through the crowds and touch people and wave and hug people and pray for people. I can't tell you that I, I saw a pope. I can tell you that I saw Jesus, and that's crazy to me. And it's something so unique about that office because before he was elected, he was a cardinal. He didn't really, I mean, he he drew crowds at events, things like, for example, you mentioned the fall of communism. Like when he visited Poland um, as pope, he drew crowds, obviously. But before he was pope, he didn't draw those crowds, right? It's Something happens where it's like evangelization on steroids, like in person, that when somebody becomes Peter, when somebody takes that office, they just radiate God. They just radiate him, right? Like, and we all want to be near him. Yes. We all want to be near. It's not about him, correct? But it's about God, who's now. This is the vicar of Christ on earth, and so we feel his closeness to Christ that is so palpable that it packs stadiums. He was the most seen person ever. Most human eyes laid on one human being, ever. Um, and what drew these crowds? The two largest crowds in history, both in uh, the Philippines, I think were his gatherings, 5 million people, over 3 million people in one crowd. Like, why did they come? To see an old Polish man? No. No, they came to see Christ. And for for whatever reason, this office of Peter and his, when it's fulfilled in a holy way, like in his, in his life, you know, people know Jesus by knowing him. Yeah, you know, and you think about, oh, it's just this old Pope church guy sitting behind the walls of the Vatican. You know, not only was he the most traveled pope, but for those of you who don't know, John Paul II was shot once mm-hmm. and stabbed once. I mean, shot and stabbed. How many of you guys listening, including you, Adam, have been <laughs> shot and stabbed for your faith? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. think about that. Like, we don't think about it. Now, if he would have died from the, the gun wound or the stab wound, which is very possible— would have been an immediate martyr. We'd be talking about that. He survived. 
We don't know why. God had more plans for him. And not only was he shot and stabbed, but he forgave the people who shot and stabbed him. Like the guy who shot him and went to jail, he went to prison and met with the guy. Mm -hmm. Like, think about that. Like, think about the mercy. Like, only one other person would do that. Jesus. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, literally, face-to-face with Jesus. And and this is, you know... I think the reason I'm so passionate about it and you is because we got to we got to visually see a saint in action, right? Like we mm-hmm. did with Mother Teresa. And you, you get to witness that love and see that love and that compassion. Is he perfect? No, he's human. But I mean he he was on the road to sainthood, like in, in his in his everyday, you know, so not only was he shot you know, he was stabbed by giving out communion. And people know the story, but he was giving out communion and someone stabbed him during communion. He finished communion line. Didn't even really know what had happened. And after mass, he was unvesting and and they saw the blood coming down his side, you know, and he had realized that he was stabbed. You know, they rushed, pretty intense. rushed him to the hospital. And, you know, he, he finished mass. Mm-hmm. And, you know... It in '93 he had already been shot, and I was at the, you know the deal with him, and he uh, he requested to take the the bullet casing off of the Pope mobile and just be you know in there without it, so he could like touch people and shake their hand and be in the crowd. Like in the back of his mind, he's got to be thinking, I could get shot or stabbed again. I don't care, mm-hmm. though. Like, Jesus wouldn't have a bullet casing around him. That's that's next level, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because we, we're very, we're very, you know, Catholic until the point where it, it gets dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he, at times, kind of looked past that danger, not out of, like, uh, lack of wisdom, but... Like, I I would say a supernatural courage to be out there with the people, you know. Well, that, I mean, he faced danger his whole life. I mean, the Lord prepared him for his office to be a courageous pope, but also a tender and gentle one. So, I mean, when we think of John Paul II, we don't think of, like, you know, this um, warrior type necessarily. But he was a warrior, but he was a tender warrior, like the one who can pick up a baby in a crowd and, and kiss it, and the one who can, you know... But, I mean, even as a seminarian, his first days in discerning the priesthood were spent underground because Nazis might kill him. Yeah. And him and his—so his, his experience of a bishop was someone who was willing to run a seminary in Nazi-occupied Poland at the risk of everyone's life. You know, that was his experience of the priesthood and what a bishop meant to be. And so when he becomes a bishop, when he becomes a pope— of course he's going to want to embrace it the same way, that this is something to risk your life for, right? This is something where it could kill you, but it's worth doing, because that was the example he saw as a seminarian. That was what he did as a seminarian, risking his life to learn philosophy and theology to one day be able to be a priest. And so nothing about his life was easy. You know, we talked about that last week a little bit, of how actual persecution the Christians made the Christian church stronger, not weaker. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we live in a day of time where we're persecuted for our faith. 
you know, uh, a lot, you know, and I think it's only going to make the church stronger. John Paul II was a witness to that, and we need to pray. I mean, he grew up in war-torn Poland. Like, mm. he had battle scars. He was an orphan. He lost his family, his parents early. And and in the midst of all that, like, he just leaned in hard to God. And I think that's, more than anything, his personal story is more touching than his papacy in a mm-hmm. sense of what he overcame and the faith that he had just on as a as a human being, right? And it's just it's so interesting that this Sunday the the reading uh, kind of this Sunday paired with you know the feast of John Paul II on the twenty second is the reading of Bartimaeus the guy who's who's blind sitting outside of Jericho and Jesus is walking through the town right um, with his with people following him and and Bartimaeus is on the side of the road and and he is you know yelling out like to Jesus, you know, son of God, have mercy on me. You know I mean? He's just desperate for mercy, for love to see, for healing. And, and Jesus is walking through the crowd. Here's his voice. You know, it's interesting that that reading this Sunday paired this week with John Paul II, who did that? Like that was, that was his papacy. Yeah, he had some tremendous writings. If you ever have the opportunity to read, um, but he he was that he was the streetwalker. He was the one who went out with the people and you know saw the blind man, heard his voice. You know, and this is this is our, the witness that we should be. You know, I mean, to other people as Christians. To, to hear the voice of others who are hurting and begging and need prayer and healing and love and mercy, you know, that's that's what we're called to do and be. When you had this ability that I'm sure our Lord radiated, um, which is why people like Bartimaeus saw in Jesus someone who would love them, who would heal them, who would give them that time. When you were with John Paul II, I mean— you were the most important thing in the room. I mean, I've never had a conversation with him, but he focuses on people, you know, like Mother Teresa would do as well. I mean, any saint will do this, but like when when you're in a room with a very important person and you're more important to them than everything that's on their mind, that's that's important. You know, like that, that's impactful. And especially for somebody like Bartimaeus or the poor or the weak or the helpless or... Um, you know, when people that are very important, like Jesus, John Paul II, Mother Teresa, all these people that are renowned, actually look at you and care about you enough to say, like like he said to Bartimaeus, you know, what do you want? What do you want for me to do for you? Um, to actually care about the needs of others as an important person is so impactful. I know for me, that's been impactful to meet sometimes, you know, important people. I didn't meet John Paul II, but others that are really, you know, got the weight of the church on their shoulders, but, like, to get the sense that they're more interested to hear from me than for me to hear from them, you know? And John Paul II did that all the time. I'm kind of a third-class relic walking around because I I touched his hand as he went by. That's that's the special thing about you. I know, and I don't know if you've known that about me, but I am... I am very third class. <laughs> Nothing I, if not third class. I do class. have a secondhand story that it fascinated me years and years ago. Obviously, he was when he was still alive. Um, I was traveling to speak 
uh, in Maine. So the diocese of Maine is, it's one diocese. So for some states like Louisiana who has seven, it's like, you know, imagine like the whole state being one diocese, right? Well, Maine's kind of this long state, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so from like one point to the other, it's like, it's like an eight hour drive, you know? So the bishop, you know, eight hours, really? Yeah. The bishop, well, because it's not like straight roads, like it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of wind and whatever, but I mean, Maine's a, a, a long, you know, so from top to bottom, whatever. So the, the bishop sometimes would have to fly from like, you know, one point to like the northest point, you know, because think about it, like an eight hour drive, like, you know, we could be in Atlanta by then, you know, Mm -hmm. so you would just take a flight there. So, uh, so I was there, the, the, the bishop had just gotten back from his, what they call their ad lumen visit, which is their every five years, they visit with the Pope, right? Mm -hmm. As a bishop. And, he had just gotten back from his ad lumen visit with John Paul II. And I just happened to be there speaking and, and then got to meet the bishop. And I was like, so can you tell me, like, how was it? Well, they don't get a whole lot of time. But so he walks in to this room with JP2, okay? And laid out on the table is a map of Maine, the United States, and then a map of Maine. And he looks at the bishop. And this will tell you, like, his heart as an evangelist, right? He looks at the bishop and he says, you're here, right? And the bishop's like, <clears throat> yes, Holy Father. That's that's where I'm at. That's my diocese. And he goes, uh, how many Catholics right there? So the bishop's like, well, you know, whatever, like around, you know, this many or this percentage of Catholics. And he points to like another area in Maine. And it's like in the woods. It's like in the middle of a national forest or something. He's mm. like, how many Catholics right here? And the bishop's like, uh, none. He, <laughs> none holy father and he's like why why are there no catholics right here and he points to another area how many catholics right here and another area how many catholics and he went through like the like just state just wondering like how's the gospel being preached like that was what he wanted to talk about he wasn't like hey like how how you're administrating like Mm -hmm. you know how many you know People have you hired this year? Show me a budget. Show me what's your budget like in your diocese. Mm-hmm. He just went around and said, "How many Catholics? How many Catholics? How many Catholics?" Basically, like to the bishop, it was like your job is to evangelize that state, that that diocese. That's your job. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Like if every bishop, every priest, every deacon, every lay minister thought about that and said, "How many? How many in my town? In my city? In my diocese?" Do that, and that was the commission of JP Duke. That was his ad lumen visit. Go home and make make more Christians. Mm-hmm. Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, did you not get the message right? Yeah. And he's like, "Yes, Holy Father. Yes, Holy Father." Well, it's just so challenging because it's a um, it's a community on mission, and sometimes the mission gets more attention. Sometimes the community gets more attention, and it's hard to maintain that that balance of both. And Pope John Paul II, uh, even he struggled with the, with this balance often, you know, administrating the church, keeping track of certain bishops. Like, you know, he wasn't perfect either as administrator. But if you're going to err on the side of one, let it be mission, right? Like, if you're going to lose the balance because none of us are perfect, let it be that I was too missionary, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, err on one end, error with it being you know 
a zeal for mission, zeal for evangelization, not like lukewarmness. And Jesus talked about this in scripture. Mm-hmm. Like, you'd be hot or cold, but to be lukewarm, like, blah. Well, for example, there um, in his pontificate in the Vatican, you know, some corruption, things like that, that endured to Benedict, that endorsed to today. And some critics of JP2 would say, well, you know, he's a saint and all, but he didn't deal with this stuff at home. But he went out and preached the gospel literally to every square inch of the planet to more people than anyone has ever preached the gospel to. Um, so, yeah, we're all limited and weak and all these things, but he erred on the side of evangelization and the side of making more Christians than, you know, pacifying the ones that are already Christians, right? And this is this is always a parish parish life tension. This is not just for the Vatican. It's like, where are we going to spend our energies pacifying the people who already believe in the gospel and making sure we're all at peace with each other and getting along or spreading the gospel to those who don't have it, who might not go to heaven because they haven't heard the name of Jesus yet. Hmm. Where are we going to focus on our energies? And that tension, you know, we go back and forth because sometimes we're all about mission. Sometimes we're all about communion. Um, but it's, it's hard to keep that up. But I, I think he's a great model for the coming church, not just for how we should have been in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, but how we need to be in this 21st century, mission-minded and, you know, getting to work, because we're going to have less Christians in the world. And so it'd be a good idea to take out that map of everybody's diocese who's listening, and, all right, what are we doing to get to that neighborhood, to that part of our diocese? That's a great question to ask. It is, and I think we need to have some fervor about it, right? Okay. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the healthcare problem. Are you paying too much for your healthcare cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show. Great to be with you today. Thanks for listening in on the radio, KLFT Radio, here in Lafayette, Louisiana, Acadiana, as we call it, the area. Area. The area. Or if you're listening on the podcast, wherever you are, driving, flying, walking, jogging. Or on a train. On a train, plane. Submarine. Whatever. Submarine. Looking for swords. Yep. We appreciate you listening in, being a part of the show. You know, it's interesting. You know, the legacy of John Paul the Great, at least for, you know, our time and and history will, you know, it'll, it'll, live obviously saints live way past our time and years you know but like you can look tangibly at families who have named their kids after him Mm -hmm. i can't tell you how many john pauls are named after you know the pope right and uh, you know it's kind of like in new england they were talking about like how many kids over 20 year span were named brady after Tom Brady, the quarterback. Oh, really? Yeah, like tons, like thousands. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, which is crazy, you know, because people, you know, like, what name? Well, yeah, whatever. But 
but saints like I they're historically so many saints live through families because they name their kids. I mean, some of our kids have saints' names and yours, mm-hmm. and you know, we don't have a John Paul, we have a Jacob Paul. But anyway, this is beside the point. It but even a, yeah, you we have a John and a Paul, but yeah. not a John Paul. Yeah, I have a George Paul, Paul George. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, but not only in names of people, but like churches are named after saints and mm-hmm. and schools, right? So, you know, you work at John Paul the Great Academy, which is named after Saint John Paul the Great, right? Yep. The school that's you know established out of the heart and mission of of a saint, you know, in our, our modern time, right? Yeah. And patron saints are, are so important because they give us a source of renewal and grace that's ongoing. And, you know, when we found a school or found a parish or found a diocese, we don't want the people who started it to be the source in the church, to be the source of everything that community is going to need because we need God to be at the source and center, right? So one of the ways we do that as a Catholic church is that we name things after saints. We And it's not just a naming. It's not like we put a name on a building like at, say, a university. This is John Paul II Library or something. We're not just honoring him, but it's an invitation to those saints, or rather it's an invitation to us from heaven to have a special ongoing relationship with these people that will be a source of grace and renewal and everything that community needs, everything that parish needs, everything that school needs. Um, that's why a lot of folks have patron saints of their families, because you need a lot to be a community, right? And to run a mission. We're talking about communion and mission. This takes a lot, and the saints offer that continual source of grace yeah. and renewal. Yeah, a great saint is kind of like Doritos. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You know how Doritos just gets in everything? They did a Dorito taco, and you're like, how can you take a great Doritos chips and put it on a taco? It and is then good. And just like, oh, Dorito taco. And it makes sense. Okay, well, now... Buffalo Wild Wings has Dorito sauce on the wing. Really? Yes, Doritos spicy sweet chili sauce. I'm just telling you, Doritos gets in everything. Yeah, they do. And and that's what a great saint does. It's just it's like just everywhere. They they get everywhere. They they it's just <laughs> they spread. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Names, schools, families, whatever. You know, I don't think my legacy will be like Doritos or John Ball the Great, but I'm going to try. Yeah, might as well try. You know, today yep. we have, um, today's the feast of Isaac, Joe, John DeBrayboof, and companions. I'd be happy to just be an and companion. Yeah, can I tag along <laughs> yeah. and die with you? Yeah. You don't even need to know my name. That's right. I'm with this guy. I'm with that guy. <laughs> you know, and that, you say guilty by association. That could be a good thing. Yeah. You know, you could be guilty by association in a good way. Like, I hang with good people who are doing amazing things and, like, I'm I'm guilty of that. That's not a bad thing. I'll be a companion. He'll Heck, get me straight oh yeah. to heaven. Oh yeah. All right. How about a six pack of questions? Question. Question number one. Doritos. So we started talking about a scuba diver who found a 900 year old crusader sword. That's true. In uh, off the coast of Jerusalem. So my question for you is: What is the coolest thing you've ever found on accident or on purpose? Hmm. Man, that's a good question. Uh, coolest thing I've ever found. I don't know if I can say it on the radio. 
Is there a number two then? If you can't say number one. <laughs> Let's just say I did the right thing. I had a hand-me-down jacket, mm-hmm. sports coat, and I found paraphernalia in it. Oh. Now, it was handed down from like, you know, not my immediate family, but like another family yeah. within the family. Gotcha. Extended family, they call that. Mm-hmm. And we all have that uncle. <laughs> and I was like a 13-year-old kid, and I was like digging in the pockets of this sports coat. For, like after like Easter service or a funeral, I can't remember what I had. And I found paraphernalia, and I had never seen that before in my life. And uh, I just, there was some, you know, it was interesting. Like I didn't know, but my conscience told me that this was bad. Mm-hmm. No one had told me. My conscience told me this was bad, and I just I flushed it all down the commode. Nice. And I had to get off my chest today. <laughs> well, I'm glad we could do that for yeah. you. Yeah. So that's the strangest thing you ever found. That was the strangest thing I've ever yeah. found. Right on. You know, yeah. <laughs> All right, question number two. Um, you mentioned Doritos, getting into everything, and saints need to be like that for sure. Um, but I want to ask you, so that COVID kind of put this phenomenon on pause a little bit of what we might call like Catholic celebrity phenomenon of like getting everywhere and everything and like Uh being into all things. But there is that, that reality of like John Paul II who really was everywhere, you know, like he really did pack the stadiums. And so I don't know, what have you found in kind of talking with people in the circles you run in or your own discernment, like this balance between, um, you know, not, not pursuing the whole Catholic celebrity life, but also being available to the Lord who will send you places. Yeah. Well, you know, his role is to be the vicar of Christ, Jesus out there in the world. I don't think he did it because he wanted to. I think he did it because he had to. Mm. I think he did it because that's what Jesus called him to do. And at the same time, like, you know, he wasn't on social media posting selfies of his face, like, hey, this is all about me. It was all about Jesus, and that's the feeling that you got. So, you know, if you just happen to be called out there to go give talks or to be out in front of people, like, figure a way that you disappear, and Jesus has made the center. And if you could do that, like, that's the best thing that you can do, is that Jesus uses you so people can meet him, not you, right? And that's the balance, right? So you have a gift, and sometimes the gift can get out in front of you. And make it about you. And to live as Christ lived is to make the gift about him. And that's that's what's most important right there. I love that. That's great. Right. It's all about the Dorito. It's all about the Dorito. So Christ is the is the crunch of the Dorito. He's everything. He's, he's everything. the taste, the smell, the crunch. He's he's is the Dorito. Wow. Por excellence. <laughs> <laughs> all right, question number three. So we talked a good bit about JP two. Um, so in preparing like presentations and talks or writing books, you, you quote people all the time. What's your, you think the quote you use from JP two the most when you're trying to inspire people in their daily, in their Christian life? The quote I would use the most, Mm -hmm. you know, I did quote him in, in, uh, my book, rethink happiness probably should have quoted him more. I mean, you could write a whole book on his quotes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't know an exact quote, but for someone who loves quotes about hope, he was, you know, his his book, you know, we always want to read the newest book that's out there. Mm-hmm. Find his book on hope, and I'm telling you, 
it's a game changer. Like that's a, it's a lifesaver in a lot of ways. And although he was a philosopher and there was density to his writing, it was very legible. Like you could, you could read it, mm-hmm. you know, just as Benedict is kind of more of a deep theologian. It's very legible. Like he, it's readable, you know, now there are some writings that are very dense. You're like, man, you gotta, you got time for that. But yeah. Right on. All right. Question number four. So <clears throat> JP two Catholics was just like a thing. And I don't know if we, I mean, I guess we still use the term. We'll talk about like Benedict's priests or Francis's priests or like Francis generation, of, generation of, but it's not the same. I mean, when we talk about JP two Catholics, there was just something about it. Describe that to me, especially for maybe young people who didn't grow up at that time and, and don't know what we're talking about. What does it mean to be a JP two Catholic? What did he do to inspire people at that time? I think there, you know, one is the longevity of his papacy. So, you know, the couple of popes before him were short, you know, so they weren't long. They didn't have a long generation to make an impact. You know, Benedict was pope for what? Eight years. Eight years. And he Mm -hmm. was like, I'm peacing out, dude. I'm old. I'm about to, (laughs) I'm about to, you know, whatever croak. And, you know, uh, Francis is here, but, you know, uh, but he's older, like the longevity of his papacy, like, what was his from 78 to 2005, you know, so what, 20, 27 so, years. Yeah. Like think about that. So that is, that is, you know, cross multiple generations. You think about that. It's a, it was the majority of my life, you know, so the impact that he made over a whole generation spanning was huge. So the generation of a church, the generation of families, the generation of a multi-generational of, you know, just, the impact was long, and uh, I think in a time and season where um, <clears throat> post you know Vatican II, there was a lot of a lot of self interpretation of things. JP two brought it back to the reality of Jesus and the impact of relationship with Christ, and um, he he became visible to a world that was like going through communism and the Vietnam Wars and, you know, still like post-World War II syndromes and, you know, the Cold War. Like, you know, we think about pandemic right now. We think about all think that time and season was like, it was touch and go. And he became very visible person of Christ to the world that was like in dire need. So it, the impact was, was great and long. All right, question number five. <clears throat> so um, you mentioned World Youth Day and the impact it had on you. Um, I, I want to hear from you just kind of like the importance of these kind of gatherings for youth over time. I know you've worked with youth a lot and you still do, um, but we're seeing less of these types of events, maybe. I don't know. It seems like in the church, like this is given less priority, maybe. I don't know. But I, I hear less young people are or accepting the faith coming into the faith? Like, do we need to keep investing in youth in these kinds of events, these bigger um, experiences that you're still telling stories about years and years later? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, yeah, the church is like, well, we got to invest in families. Yeah, because that's the first place of faith for kids and whatnot is the family and marriages, but we're still at a 50% divorce rate and the clips of dads and moms not going to church. So there is all these young people who don't have that family at home. So what do we do about them? Oh, nothing. 
so yeah, like reaching youth and young people is more important than ever before with whatever youth ministry and trips. And I mean, you work at a school full of youth. Like why? Is it just a school to, to teach math and science? No, it's a school of faith, right? Mm. Well, no, that's the family's job. No, it, well, it's both. It's mm-hmm. both and, you know, where you guys do trips and pilgrimages. Why do you do that? For faith reasons, right? So it's both and, and we need it. And, and churches have got to continue to invest not only in families, but in the youth hands down period. And speaking of, in the spirit of JP too, that was one of the things he did. He invested in young people. And even as a young priest and bishop, he would camping trips with students and college kids and investing in just those small moments and to hear stories of actually those people who were on those simple trips with him were life-changing forever. It's awesome. All right, question number six. You mentioned a lot of people naming their kids Brady after Tom Brady. Yeah. So if you had to name your next child, which I'm sure you have one coming any day now. Oh, God. Um, if you had to name your next child after a sports figure. Can we just say grandchild? Or grandchild. Okay, okay. that would be greater. Your, your daughter will come to you and say, Dad, I'm going to let you name the grandchild. And you want to name it after a sports personality. Herschel. Really? Herschel Walker. That was quick. I mean, like, how cool of a name. It is a cool name, too. Herschel Walker George. I like it. It's not bad. That's not bad. That was a quick answer. You've yeah. thought about this. No, I have not thought about it. You just mentioned it. As okay. you were mentioning it, I was just thinking, like, yeah. Okay. I bet there's some Herschels out there after him, by the way. It would have to be after him because that can't be a common name. Yeah. I would imagine. Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson George. George. <laughs> that kind of be cool. That would be cool. You know? You um, don't know Bo. Anyway, so that would be it. St. Bo Jackson. <laughs> Pray for us. Anyway, we dedicate this show to John Paul the Great and his intercession. Thanks, everyone, for listening in, being a part of the show. Feel free to share the show. Find it on the podcast. And thanks to KLFT Radio here in Acadiana. And we'll be back next week. God bless you.